Take a seat, take a seat. Good evening, guys. How are we doing? Good. I'm so glad to see you. Big thumbs up in the back for my man, Aiden. If we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name's Rory. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. Um, your guy, Eddie, is sick. Um, he's being a baby. Um, in all reality, I was going to be here tonight anyway, so we told him, man, get some rest. So I'm glad here to hang out with you guys. Um, let's start off this way as we think about where we're going tonight. Um, when you think about some of the greatest stories that you've ever heard, the greatest movies, greatest books you've ever read, I, I think something that's true is that where you see yourself in a story makes all the difference. Where you see yourself in a story makes all the difference. Um, I watch a lot of movies, a lot of shows, um, but there's this weird thing that I sometimes do when I watch a show like too much, when I binge it, um, I will start to take on the qualities and characteristics of the main character. Um, now, this is like, it's kind of funny if I watch The Office for a long period of time, right? All of a sudden, I'm walking around saying really inappropriate things, acting like Michael Scott, no one wants to work for me. It gets a little bit more interesting when I watch, there's a show on HBO, some of you have never watched it, it's called The Newsroom, and it's this political uh, series that follows a group, yeah, there we go, Donica's with me, that uh, follows this team of news anchors and what they're doing. And one of the main characters, his name's Will McAvoy, he's known in the show, he will sort of just break out in this long rant or diatribe about what he finds to be very important. And I binged this show at one point, and I found myself coming into work, and I would just start giving these long rants and diatribes about things that were going on, things that did not require a rant at all, and yet I was like standing on a soapbox in the middle of an office with people listening to me. And one of my friends at one point, she looked at me and goes, are you doing the newsroom? And I was like, I think I might be. And then I, at one point, um, watched this show. Some of you have probably watched it. I don't condone this show, but I've watched it. It's called Peaky Blinders. It's on Netflix. It's a great show in some ways. In other ways, it's not a great show. But I found myself at one point taking on the main characters of the, uh, taking on the characteristics of the main character in this show. His name's Thomas Shelby. He leads a uh, small gang in, in Eastern Europe. And I found myself sort of walking around the office one day acting like I too was leading a small gang in the workplace. So I would shout out orders, I would start to say things to people, and again, this same friend of mine, she looked at me and she went, are you doing Thomas Shelby right now? And I was like, you know, I am. It's interesting, because all of us, we read stories, we watch shows, we watch movies, we get engaged with it, and we find ourselves in certain characters. We begin to connect with their characteristics and their behaviors. And there's something actually interesting that can happen when we read the Bible, is that we can do the same thing. We can open up a story and we can begin to find ourselves in the characters. Some of us, we open up the story and we find ourselves in Jesus, which is probably a bit of a trap um, because most of us are not like Jesus at all. Um, we're trying, we're a work in progress, but we're not like him. So the question almost always presents itself when we open up a text or a story, who am I in this moment? Who am I in this story that we're reading. Am I Jesus? Am I the person Jesus is talking to? Am I the people that are watching Jesus? Am I the disciples who don't really know what's going on? Who am I in this moment? And tonight, I want to look at two stories. Eddie gave me one sort of section to preach out of, and I was like, I think I'm going to do two of them, because in order to stand, understand the first one, you have to actually understand the second one. In order to understand the second one, you have to actually understand the first one. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, starting 
in Luke chapter 18, verse 35. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Let me know when you're there by yelling, I'm there. Like three of you have Bibles? We're going to have to work on that. That works. Luckily for you, it's going to be on the screen. Luke 18, 35, it says this. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked, them, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Friends, let me pray, and then we'll talk through this. God, we're thankful for any opportunity to gather together as a crew of people and worship and open the scriptures. God, we just got done singing about how you're good and everything you do is good. You're kind and everything you do is kind. And I could look across the room that we stand in and I saw faces of people who were just not sure if that's true. To even sing those words, to even mouth those words, to even pretend to sing them felt like lying to themselves. God, with that in mind, we ask you to meet all of us here. Those of us who have seen your goodness and your blessings and your faithfulness in our lives, and we can recognize it and see it and tangibly touch it. We ask that you'd meet us in this space. But I also, I also pray right now specifically for the people who are just unsure if you are as good and kind as you claim to be. Would you meet us in this space? Would you present yourself? Would you speak to us? Would you show us a part of you that we have not yet seen? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. So catch the story. Jesus and his disciples are headed to a city called Jericho. And if you've been around church, you know that Jericho has some Old Testament presence as well. It's a well-known city. It was maybe one of the largest cities in the ancient Middle East at one point. And they're heading there, and it was custom in Jesus' day and age, that when someone of importance was coming to town, the whole town would get up, leave what they were doing, and come to meet that person before they ever entered the city. And the way that you could like recognize who was more important was how far an audience or a crowd was willing to travel to meet them on the outside of the city. So if you were a king, if you were an emperor, man, they would travel a long ways maybe even 50 miles to come and meet you and help escort you into the city. If you were less important, well, you'd be lucky if anyone was there to say hi to you. But they would come out and they would meet them at a certain point. And, and, and they would do this because there was prestige around the person that was coming in. So we can imagine that Jesus, as he's approaching the city, this crowd has come out to meet him. They're giving him this public attention. Jesus always finds himself surrounded by crowds. It's just what happens. And what the story presents to us, what Luke writes, is that there, as Jesus is walking in with this crowd of people, there's a beggar who is sitting on the side of the road somewhere. And Luke paints this, this really clear picture. The beggar is blind, so he can't see what's happening. 
He's aware that something is going on, that someone is showing up because he hears the mob of people. He hears their footsteps as they're running by him. He can feel the dirt as it's like splashing up on his body. He knows that there is something going on. And what they do is they inform him that Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet, this well-known figure, this rabbi, this teacher, is making his way towards the city. And this man just begins shouting because he's heard the stories about Jesus. He's become aware of who this character is. And he begins to yell, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? And this interesting thing happens. I don't know if you've caught it in the story before, but the crowd, as soon as he begins to yell, shushes him. They silence him. Now, Luke gives us very little information about who this man is sitting on the side of the road. The Gospel of Mark gives us maybe a clearer picture. What we know about this man is his name is Bartimaeus. And what that name could mean is one of two things. What people have often thought is that it means son of Timaeus. So it's like a family name. But the name Bartimaeus has like a a really brutal Greek translation, which is that it means son of filth. This is a blind man who is begging for money, sitting in the dirt. I am going to take the approach that this name has been given to him by the very people of the city of Jericho who have watched him day after day, week after week, month after month, sit in the dirt and beg for someone to help him. This is not like a title. This is them insulting him, making fun of him. I don't know if you ever made fun of in school or if you ever watched someone get made fun of in school, but you know how quickly a nickname can stick with someone, even if it's not accurate or true. Because when we're young, we're really bad at making up insults. But this name has become implanted on this man. And the language that is being used here is the crowd doesn't just look at him and go, hey, would you keep it down a little bit? The language that they use is more equivalent to what we would say if someone was being loud and we looked at him and said, shut up. So they're not just insulting him. They've not just applied a nickname to him. They've not just insulted his identity. As Jesus is coming past him, they're looking at him and screaming, as a crowd, shut up, stop talking. Which is so interesting to consider that this is the crowd that is running out to meet Jesus. This religious figure, this crowd is moving with as much force and possibility as they can. And they look at this character in the dirt and they tell him to be quiet. It's a warning to us. This is just free content here. It's a warning to us that there are moments in our lives when our religious zeal and fervor can actually keep us from seeing the very people that Jesus is interested in. We can be so fixated on getting to church and doing all the right things and reading our Bible that what we actually do is end up missing the very people that are around us that the Bible we're reading about invites us to see and care for and love. That's just extra content. You hold on to that. Now, What we know about sick people, blind people in the ancient Middle East, is that they were considered pretty low, pretty substandard to the rest of society. In many ways, people wondered if they were sick, if they were blind, if there was something wrong with them because they had done something wrong. Were they being punished by God for their behavior? They often wondered if their parents had done something wrong. Was there something that was coming upon them because of the sins of their parents? They wondered if they were cursed. If someone, some spirit somewhere had laid something upon them. What we know about beggars is that beggars in the Middle East existed for the sake of the wealthy. Now, this might be a new bit of information for you. 
beggars in the Middle East would sit on the side of the road. And the way that Jewish people offered, often thought about them is that they were there so that you had the privilege to practice generosity. You as someone with money had the opportunity to come by and give. And the way that they were sort of taught to think about it is this is directly giving to God. So if you were to stop, give to a beggar, what the beggar would do is stand up, say thank you, and then they would begin to shout to the crowd or the, the audience, the people that were around saying, look at how kind this person has been. They are certainly the most wealthy, gracious, kind, generous people I have ever seen. Would everyone just give them a round of applause? This is what beggars were meant to do. They were meant to have this moment where they would honor the rich person who bothered to stop and give them any money at all. In other words, this blind beggar is somehow viewed as cursed, broken, messed up, and simultaneously viewed as a tool for those who have money and power and who could get something from them. But God forbid that Jesus himself would ever walk by and that person would ask for healing. The crowd looks at him and says, you have to be quiet. And Jesus does something so fascinating. He has the crowd, as he stops to recognize this man, he has the crowd grab the man and bring him to him. Jesus is taking the very people who have just insulted, ridiculed, and berated this man and brought him close to them. And as this man gets close, Jesus says his faith has healed him. He finds salvation in his life. And the salvation doesn't just come through like his eternal life someday. It comes physically on his body. He begins to see for the very first time. Why do I walk through all this with you? In, in quick summary. In this moment, what Jesus does is he extends attention, care, and grace to the oppressed. And what we know about Jesus and the God of the Bible is that Jesus extends a unique level of care and grace to the oppressed of society. In fact, if you've read the Bible or studied it all, it's sort of common knowledge to know that there is this special place in the heart of God for the people who have been poor, broken, marginalized, and oppressed by people in the world. There's a special place in God's heart. We see this in the book of Psalms, Psalm 82. The psalmist writes, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods, which is way, it's a way to say he renders judgment among the nations, all of the nations that function the way he's about to describe. And he asks the question, how long will you defend the unjust and so partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. This is the call. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Even in this moment, in the Psalms of the Old Testament, what God is doing is presenting this picture that even in worship, what Israel is called to do is look at the poor, the broken, the marginalized, the oppressed of society, the people who have been forgotten, who have been pushed down, and keep a special place in their hearts and in their minds for these people. You tracking with me so far? Okay, you guys are smart. Now, Jesus extends a special kind of grace and salvation and goodness to the oppressed. He always has, he always will. Don't at me, don't argue with me about that. That's just what Jesus is. However, a question that's worth asking is what if Jesus' forgiveness, his grace, and his salvation doesn't just get extended to the abused and the mistreated, but it actually gets extended beyond them? Now, this is where the second story comes into place. Luke 19, so just the very next verse. 
Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Hands in the air, where are all my short people at? There we are. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back four times in the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, our Bible splits these two stories up, but in the ancient manuscripts, these two stories probably ran right next to each other which means that the best way for us to understand them is for us to also read them right up next to each other. Now, a couple of things that's important to notice. I've always read this story of Zacchaeus as an extension of Jesus getting into the city. But what the language is, is using there is actually a picture that Jesus has come into the city of Jericho. He's sort of done a tour of the place. What was expected of someone like Jesus in this day and age is that he would come in there would be this moment where Jesus could sort of stand up in the middle of everyone, give like a short TED talk on what he was planning to do as the future coming Messiah of the world. And then there would be a massive banquet feast held for him and he would stay at the home of the most powerful person in the city. This is what's expected of him. The language though that's used in the beginning of the story implies that Jesus has gone to Jericho, he's done his tour, and what he has actually done is completely ignored and rejected all of the frivolous things that were extended to him. He says, listen, I'm not going to stay here and talk. I'm not going to give this big speech. I'm not going to spend the night, and I'm not going to have this big feast. I'm going to leave. Part of the reason that we know this is that we find Zacchaeus up a sycamore tree. Sycamore trees were big trees. They were considered like you could stay under them in time of need. They were a big shelter, which meant they had to be grown at least 100 yards away from the city. So what we're, here, what we're finding here in this moment is that Zacchaeus is up in a tree and Jesus is exiting the city. The crowd, the same crowd that berated and yelled at the blind man is still following Jesus as he exits the city. He's rejected everything that they presented to him. Zacchaeus is up in a tree. And most of us have come to believe that Zacchaeus was up in a tree simply because he was what? Short. He's up in a tree because it's just functional. He needs to be able to see something. But what do we know about Zacchaeus? He's not just short. He's also short and hated. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. Zacchaeus is the tax collector. Zacchaeus is the dude standing in the city monitoring all the other tax collectors as they take money from the people of his city. Now, what we know about the way the Roman Empire taxed people is that there was a thing called triple taxation. So the Jews were paying taxes to their local people. They were paying taxes to the Roman government on high. And then these chief tax collectors would come along because they needed to make a paycheck of some sort. And they would begin to collect a tax. Why do we know that this is how it worked? Well, because the way that Zacchaeus is referred to is not just that he's a, a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector and he's wealthy. So he is sitting rolling in the dough of the money of this entire crowd. 
This crowd are the very people that he has robbed. This is the crowd that he has taken money from. He's destroyed their livelihood. He's wrecked their family's financial future. He's made some of them bankrupt. He's made some of them lose family members to the Roman Empire as a bill for the way that they couldn't pay their taxes. Zacchaeus is not just up in a tree because he can't see. He's up in a tree because if he's down on the ground, who knows what could happen? Does somebody come up behind him, stab him in the back? Does a group of people begin to beat and destroy him? So Zacchaeus is up in a tree, terrified. And the text doesn't tell us why, but for some reason, he is fascinated by Jesus. This dude who has done as many wrong things as he could to his own people has found a fascination with this guy who claims to maybe be the Messiah of the world. And I would wonder if that's where some of you sit. You're not really sure why you're fascinated with this Jesus person, but you're interested in him. You've shown up here over the course of time, you've listened to stories, you've read the Bible, you've heard sermons, you've sang some songs, and you're not sure why, but you are so fascinated by who this Jesus claims to be and what he says he like offers you in your life. What we know about Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus, unlike the blind man, is not oppressed. Zacchaeus is the oppressor. Zacchaeus has not been beaten down. Zacchaeus has not been stolen from. Zacchaeus has not been robbed. Zacchaeus is the number one abuser in his city. He is the number one wrongdoer. He is public enemy number one. And what we find out in this story is that just Zacchaeus being in the presence of Jesus for a little while, Jesus sees him, he accepts him. Jesus then doubles back to the city and says, I'm going to actually eat a meal in your house. And the crowd loses their mind. It's one thing for Jesus to heal a man that they don't think is worth anything. It's a whole different problem for, them to he- for him to heal the man that has done them wrong. Do you see the perplexity that Jesus is causing this crowd of people? Listen, the beautiful thing about who Jesus is and what the gospel does is this, is that Jesus extends infinite love and salvation for both the oppressed and the oppressor. These are words that I've even had like a hard time saying today. Jesus extends infinite love and salvation for both the oppressed and the oppressor. We have a hard time hearing that because when we hear the word oppressor, what we think an oppressor deserves is what? Justice. They deserve to have happened to them what, has hap- what they have done to everyone else. And yet what we see in this moment is that Jesus is just as willing to extend healing and love and salvation to the one that is being pressed down as he is to the one who has done the pressing down. Now, something I want to say very clearly is that Jesus loves both the oppressed and the oppressors. This is true. And that love is equal only in as so far is that it's infinite for both. But love, but the love of Jesus, the implications on each of those parties is completely different. It calls the oppressed to a life of trust and healing, and it calls the oppressor to a life of repentance and repair. So you need to hear that. The same love is handed out, but it calls each party to something completely different. So I'll ask you the same question I asked when we started this. Where do you find yourself in the story? 
Do you hear the story of the blind man who's been pressed down and abused and ignored, who's been oppressed? And do you think to yourself, man, I don't know that I've ever been oppressed, but I know what it feels like to be in the dirt. Are you the person who, as you look at your life right now, you feel like life has just handed you a bad deck of cards? Money's not working out. School's not working out. Your career isn't working out. Your relationships aren't working out. Your friendships aren't working out. You look at your life and think, I don't know if things could get any worse. Or you've been brutalized by the expectations that have been placed on you. So you, what you've done is shape-shifted yourself to become someone that you're not. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, you kind of go, I don't know who I am anymore. You folded to the expectations of your parents and your family members. You've become someone that you think everyone else wants you to be. So when you stand and you think to yourself, who am I really? You don't know. And that idea of sitting down in the dirt with no hope, not being able to see clearly, feels really close to home. And what I know about people when they find themselves in the dirt, when it feels like their life is completely falling apart, is that the primary feeling that you feel is embarrassment. So you hide. You wouldn't dare tell a pastor about what's going on. You wouldn't dare tell even your closest friends. You're suffering and struggling. You feel like life is falling apart, but only you know how bad it truly is. Maybe that's who you, who you sort of identify with in this story. I want to say this to you tonight, if you align with that, is that salvation for you looks like trusting Jesus with that healing. It doesn't look like you going, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to wake up tomorrow and get out of the dirt. You can try. Nine times out of ten, you're going to fall back down. You think about this blind man. How many times, I wonder, in the middle of the night when it was pitch black, it was dark outside, he was cold, he was alone, and he thought to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stand up and I'm going to go into the city. I'm going to try to find someone who will take care of me, who will love me. And he tripped along the way. He fell down along the way. Listen, you cannot muscle your way to salvation. You just can't do it. And the problems that you're facing in your life is that you have been doing that very thing. You have been standing up. Man, you look really tough. You look really strong. You're presenting to the world. Your Instagram is like pristine. You look like everything is right. But inside, you feel as oppressed as they come, like the world has squashed you down. And you keep trying to present as if things are right, but they're not. Friend, the invitation for you is would you simply trust Jesus with the healing that needs to happen? Would you simply trust Jesus with the things that you need in your life to change? I love what Jesus says to this man. He says, what do you want? Jesus isn't like, let's play a guessing game and see if you get it right. Jesus needs this man who has been pressed down, who is wounded, who is battered, to own the thing he is longing for. And Jesus says, well, your faith is the thing that brings it to you. And what that doesn't mean is that if you find yourself in a space like this, that your faith is wrong or that your faith has broken down. It actually means that there's probably a new level of faith that you can step into. And it doesn't involve you working your way towards it. Friends, if you find yourself in this place, salvation for you looks like trusting Jesus with your healing. But some of us 
if we're honest, if we're honest. You don't identify with the person that life has sort of pressed you down. You identify more with Zacchaeus. The character in this story who has done more wrong than you can imagine. You're maybe not an oppressor. But when you think about yourself, you have done so many things wrong and you think to yourself, man, if people really knew who I was, like behind closed doors, if people really knew what I had done all those years ago, if people really knew what I had done when I was in high school, when I was in college, they wouldn't even welcome me here. And so what you're metaphorically doing, even when you walk into church, is you're climbing a tree. You're going, I'll come in, but I'm going to come in on my terms. I'm going to come in with enough distance that no one can really see me, that no one can really tell what is going on. You're the person that if you're honest, there are places that are public or private in your life that are littered with sin. And I don't say that to make you feel bad. Let's just call a spade a spade. There are spaces in your life that is littered with sin. It doesn't have to be the big stuff. It's not like you're walking around murdering people. But there are some of you who carry around the sin of gossip and jealousy. There are some of you who carry around the sin of lust, who carry around the sins of resentment and bitterness. Those things are only sins in as far as we allow them to be. But some of you, you find yourself being much like Zacchaeus. You have done so many things wrong in your mind, you can't imagine being open, being transparent. And what happens for people who feel that way is what roots itself in your life is not conviction, it's shame. Conviction happened a long time ago. You're still carrying it. That's not conviction. That's shame. Which just to clarify for some of you, if you did something wrong two years ago and you're still hearing voices in your brain about it, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's the enemy. And what you have found yourself is in a space where the only thing you can do now is repent. Listen, salvation for the oppressor, we see it in this story. It looks like repentance, deep and meaningful repentance. I want to invite the band back up as we get ready to step back into worship here in just a few minutes. Salvation for the oppressor looks like repentance. Zacchaeus is forced to own what he's done wrong. And he does something that's really well known in in the ancient Middle East is he exaggerates what he would be willing to do to fix it. He said, if I have stolen from anyone, if I have robbed anyone, I will pay them back four times over. If Zacchaeus did that, he would be poor. Jesus isn't going to look at him and go, would you do that? What Zacchaeus is presenting in that moment is his his willingness to restore even the things that he himself has broken. That's his act of repentance. For some of you, the response tonight is to simply look at God and say, God, I have messed this up royally. I've broken relationships. I've broken myself. I've done all sorts of things. God, I am sorry. And God doesn't need you to do that for him. Some of you, that's what you believe about repentance. As God is like up there with a list and he's like, well, you didn't really apologize for that yet. God wants you to repent for your sake. Half of what happens on the cross is not just about like cosmic guilt. It's about cosmic shame. 
what you carry into spaces for the rest of your life, believing that you are only as good as the last thing you got wrong. And so friends, the invitation for us tonight, I wanna invite you to stand as we're, we're gonna sing a song here in a moment. The invitation for some of us tonight, because what Jesus says in both of these cases is your faith has made you well. Your trust in me to bring healing and goodness and salvation into your life, that is what's made you well. He says that to the blind man. He looks at Zacchaeus and it's because of Zacchaeus's repentance that he looks at him and says, salvation has come to this house. So we're gonna do something that's a little uncomfortable. Didn't plan this, but we're gonna do it. I have a sense that what some of us need to do is have the same physical act that the blind man and that Zacchaeus had. They pressed into Jesus. That's when the healing came. That's when salvation came. That's when repentance showed up. That's when forgiveness came. So friends, I'm gonna invite you to do this tonight. As we sing this next song, I don't want you to be paying attention to anyone around you. This is between you, this is between you and Jesus. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, rededicate your life or anything like that. There's a longstanding tradition in the church that people would come down to the front of the altar, get down on their knees, sit down, lay down, stand up, whatever it might be, to say, Jesus, I trust you with my healing, but to also say, Jesus, I repent for the places that I have broken, bruised, offended, hurt myself and others. So friends, tonight we're gonna sing and these altars are just gonna be open. Now here's how I know how this works. If none of you move, none of you will move. If one of you moves, all of you will move. So I'm just gonna ask in the room, who's the first person you don't need to do it right now. I'm gonna pray over you in a second. Who will come down, sit on your knees and just begin to pray. Let me pray over you and these altars are open. God, invitations like this are intimidating, but what we see even in the story is that a physical response, a walking towards, a movement towards is the thing that can begin to unlock things for us in our lives and in our faith. So God, as we come forward tonight, as we kneel and say we trust you with our healing, as we kneel and repent for the places we have failed, we simply ask that you would meet us down front. And because we know the kind of God you are, you are already here. You are the kind of God who is good and everything you do is good. Would that God meet us here? You are the kind of God who is kind and everything you do is kind. Would you meet us in this space? And as we come forward, would we not find guilt or shame? Would we find salvation and healing and freedom? God, we're praying all this in faith, trusting that you are the God you claim to be. You are the kind of God that we see in Jesus himself who is willing to come in the flesh and stand with us, who is not afraid of us. And so God, tonight we're not gonna be afraid of you. I pray this over my friends, asking that they would receive healing and freedom and salvation tonight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's respond.